Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And we're using, again, our Belgic Confession of Faith as our guide. Today, with God's help, we want to continue to learn more about God's plan of redemption for fallen sinners. This time, we want to consider the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus Christ. In that connection, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we read the verses 13 to 20. Hear God's holy word. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. As far as the reading of the Holy Word of God, may the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, who is Jesus Christ? Maybe you think that's a strange question. After all, most of us have been raised with the Scriptures. We, of all people, know who Jesus is. And yet, this question is not that strange. For Jesus asked the same question of his disciples. We read of that in the passage earlier, Matthew 16, the verses 14 to 20. There we read how Jesus and the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi. And while they were there, Jesus asked them, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And in response to that question, the disciples answered and said, Some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked them, But whom do you say that I am? Whereupon Peter, on behalf of all of the disciples, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now our Lord's question and Peter's answer are highly significant. Our Lord asked Peter, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? By calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus was partially answering his own question. He was saying that he was the Son of Man, thereby emphasizing his humanity. 
But Peter's answer provides even more detail as to his identity. By saying that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter was emphasizing his divinity. Now we come in our study of the Belgic Confession to Article 19, and the title of this article is The Union and Distinction of the Two Natures in the Person of Christ. This article is closely related to the one that comes before it, Article 18. Article 18 deals with the subject of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we confess that Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, took upon himself a human body and a human soul, both of which he received from the Virgin Mary. And he became, in every sense of the word, a real man, yet without sin. And as such, Christ has two natures. He has a divine nature, received from his conception by the Holy Spirit, and a human nature, received from his human mother, Mary. Now the question we want to deal with now is, how do these two natures relate to each other? Is Jesus 50% human and 50% divine? Is he more divine than human? Or is he more human than divine? Or is he both in equal measure? Now some upon hearing these questions might say, well, who cares? Does this really matter? Is it really important to know how the two natures of Christ relate to each other? And I submit to you that it does. In fact, as we hope to see in a moment, our very salvation depends on it. This is why the early church fathers spent so much time and effort debating and researching and writing about this subject, because they understood its great importance. For if Christ is not fully human and divine in one person, then we simply cannot be saved. So with this in mind and God's help, let's consider what the scriptures teach concerning the two natures of Christ. And that's our theme. And we'll see that this teaching contains, first of all, a deep mystery, and secondly, a blessed comfort. Article 19 of the Belgic Confession of Faith summarizes what the scriptures teach about the two natures of Christ. Now, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we speak of the natures of Christ? Well, the word nature refers to that which makes a creature what it is. It answers the question, what kind? For example, a horse has a different nature than a man or a snake. A horse is an animal. A man is a human being. A snake is a reptile. When we speak of the nature of Christ, therefore, we are referring to what he is. Now, as we've already observed, and as we also learned last time, the Lord Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. Now, that cannot be said of anyone else, any other human being. You and I are only and exclusively human. But Jesus was both human and divine. Now, we already considered that truth in Article 10. And there we learned that the doctrine of the divinity of Christ rests on four grounds. First of all, Scripture applies to him divine names. He's called Wonderful, Counselor, 
the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Lord, and many others. Secondly, Scripture ascribes to him divine attributes. He is said to be eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Thirdly, Scripture speaks of him as doing divine works. He is said to create and uphold and forgive sins and judge. And fourthly, Scripture accords to Christ divine honor. He is the object of worship and praise. Now we also learned that Christ is a real man. And we know that he's a real man because he calls himself a man several times. He is also called a man by others. And we are told repeatedly in the scriptures that Christ came or was manifested in the flesh, meaning in our human nature. He also had the essential elements of a human nature. He had a material body and a rational soul. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus experienced emotion. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He was angry with the Pharisees for their unbelief. He experienced hunger, such as when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He experienced thirst, like when he was on the cross, and fatigue when he lay asleep in the boat. Jesus, therefore, was a real human being. The only difference between Jesus and us is that he was without sin. Other than that, he is as human as you and me. But the point of this article is not to assert that Christ is fully human and divine. The point of this article is simply to summarize what the scriptures teach concerning the relationship between these two natures. Now, how do we describe this relationship? How do the divine and human natures of Christ relate to each other? As we asked a moment ago, is Christ half human and half divine? Is he more human than divine? Is he more divine than human? Or is he a mixture of both? Well, in answer to that question, our confession makes two important statements. First of all, it says that Christ has two distinct natures inseparably united in one person. I quote from this article. It says here that we believe that by this conception, it's talking about Christ's conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature. So that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Now we call that the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The word hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which can be translated as person. So according to this doctrine, Christ is divine and human in one person. Both of these natures combine in the same person. Now, in making this statement, our confession is really following the line established by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. One of the purposes of that great church council was to examine the teachings of Nestorius. Nestorius was the bishop of Constantinople back then. And Nestorius taught that Christ was two distinct persons. He was God and he was man. And as such, his divine nature was distinct from his human nature. And his human nature was distinct from his divine nature. 
The two natures of Christ were like oil and water, he said. They were distinct, so distinct that Christ was actually two separate persons. Now, after many weeks of debate, the Council of Chalcedon condemned the teachings of Nestorius as heresy. And it declared that Christ is not two distinct persons. He is one person with two natures. And that these two natures are absolutely inseparable. Now, that's clearly what the scriptures teach. At no time does scripture describe Christ as two distinct persons. If he was, we would expect to find some trace of that in the scriptures. For example, we would expect to find examples of Christ conversing with himself. That is, Christ in his human nature conversing with his divine nature, or vice versa. Or perhaps even referring to himself in the plural. But there's not a single example of that anywhere. The only exception to that is John 3, verse 11, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Now notice, here Jesus uses the plural pronouns, we and our. Why does he do that? Well, not because Jesus is more than one person, as Nestorius claimed. But in order to distinguish himself and his disciples from Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees. He's saying, in effect, as for us, in other words, as for me and my disciples, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. But as for you, that is, as for you, Nicodemus, and the other Pharisees, ye receive not our witness. The point is, Christ has these two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, but they are united together in one person. Secondly, we also confess here that although Christ has two natures, and although these two natures are inseparably linked, each nature retains its own distinct properties. That's what our confession also says. Now, in making that statement, the Belgian Confession is distancing itself from another early heresy called Eutychianism. And that's named after its major proponent, a man by the name of Eutyches. Eutychianism is the exact opposite of Nestorianism. Whereas Nestorius separated the two natures of Christ to the point that Christ became essentially two persons, Eutyches fused them into one. In his view, Christ had only one nature. The human was largely fused, he said, into the divine. And the result is that Christ is neither human nor divine, but something in between. His human nature possesses the qualities of his divine nature, and his divine nature possesses the qualities of his human nature. To give an analogy, Eutyches said that Christ's divine nature is like hot water, and his human nature is like cold water. Christ is neither hot nor cold, but something in between. He is warm water. Now, over and against this, the Belgian Confession, again, following the line of the Orthodox Fathers, says that while the two natures of Christ are united in the same person, they are not fused together. They remain distinct. We confess here, and I quote, that the divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth, so also hath the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, 
and retaining all the properties of a real body. In other words, when Christ became incarnate, his divine nature remained divine. His human nature remained human. Now, to reinforce this, our confession says that the two natures of Christ are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. So when Christ commended his spirit to his Father when he was on the cross, he did not commend his divine nature, for he retained his divine nature even when he was in the grave. Rather, he commended only his human soul. And that means that even while Jesus was in the tomb, and even, as our confession goes on to state, even when he was an infant lying in the manger in Bethlehem, he was still God, upholding and directing all things. The point is, Christ was and remains to this day fully human and fully divine. Now, not everyone agrees with this formulation. The followers of the German reformer Martin Luther The Lutherans have suggested that when Christ rose from the dead, his body became deified. It assumed properties of his divine nature. And that lies at the heart of their doctrine of consubstantiation. According to the Lutherans, when Christ ascended into heaven, his body became ubiquitous, meaning everywhere present. And as such, Christ, they say, is present in, under, and with the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper but we believe that is to confuse the human, and nature, the human and divine natures of Christ. The fact is, even as he sits at the right hand of his Father in glory, Christ retains a human body that is just like ours. If we could see him, we could still see the print of the nails in his hands and in his feet and the gash in his side. He is still today the lamb that was slain. The only difference between Christ's body and ours is that he is immortal, meaning he is not subject to decay and death. Our body is not immortal, at least not yet. Our body will become immortal on the day of resurrection, but on this side of the grave, it is very much mortal. Other than that, there is no difference. Now, we know that because when Christ ascended into heaven, he ascended with a real human body. It was a glorified body, to be sure, but it was still an ordinary human body that could eat, that could move, be touched, and be seen. And so Christ has these two natures, and these two natures are inseparably united in one person. Let me ask you, having explained this, let me ask you, do you believe it? Now, I know this is a great mystery. Who can possibly comprehend how the divine and human natures of Christ relate to each other? No one. To try to explain the relationship between the divine and human natures of Christ is like trying to explain the Trinity. It simply cannot be done. The only way we can believe this is by faith wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. And isn't that also what Jesus said to Peter? After Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And so Jesus blessed Peter for his confession, and he acknowledged that this confession did not come from him. It came from his Father, through the Holy Spirit, who opened Peter's eyes to see and to believe who Jesus really was, both fully human and yet fully divine. Well, my friend, has he done the same for you? Is this also your confession today? Oh, how necessary this is. 
For unless we confess this, we cannot partake of the comfort of this confession either. And what is that comfort? That brings us to our second point. The fact that Christ is fully human and fully divine in one person is not a mere fine point of theology that has no practical relevance. No, it is very relevant. In fact, our confession mentions two reasons why this doctrine is of immense comfort to believers. First of all, it says that the fact that he is fully divine means that by his power he might be able to conquer death. Now, death is a terrible reality. It's the consequence of sin. Before man sinned, there was no death. Man was created to live forever in perfect fellowship and communion with God. But when man sinned, death entered into the world. And from that moment forward, man has to die. And that's still true today. One day, unless our Lord returns, you and I and every single human being on the face of this planet will have to die. Death is the just wages of sin. And how much sorrow and pain death has caused. And some of us have experienced that pain firsthand. We know of the pain of bringing a loved one, a relative, a spouse, a sibling, a child to the grave. It's a pain like no other. And the worst thing is we cannot stop it. With all of our medical technology, we cannot stop people from dying. Death will continue to snatch people out of this life until the end of time. But the blessed comfort of this article is that because Christ is divine, he is able to conquer death. No mere human being could do this. But Christ can, because he is no mere human being. He is human and divine. In fact, he demonstrated his mastery over death several times, even during his earthly ministry. When he raised the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus, and when he called forth Lazarus from the dead. But he demonstrated this even more spectacularly when he himself rose from the dead after three days. And in doing so, Christ declared victory over death. Death is no longer an undefeated enemy. It is conquered by Christ. And that's why we can say with the Apostle Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we have victory in Christ, victory over death, but that would not be possible if Christ was not fully divine. O child of God, do you see what a comfort it is that Christ is fully divine? Because he's fully divine, he has overcome death. And by virtue of our union with him through faith, we too shall overcome death in him. No, death will not have the final word. Although our bodies one day will be lowered into the grave and turn again to the dust from which they were formed, we may be absolutely certain that when Christ comes again, that these same bodies will be raised incorruptible and we shall stand before God and live in his presence forever and ever. So rejoice that Christ is fully divine. Secondly, our confession says that the fact that Christ is fully human means that he is able to die. A divine being cannot die. Only a human being can die. And the fact that Christ was human meant that he was able to die. Now, why is that important, you say? Well, it's important 
because the penalty for sin is death. Those who sin must die. But if Christ could not die, then his penalty, this penalty, could not be paid. And if the penalty could not be paid, then none of us could be saved. And so this too is a great comfort. The fact that Christ is fully divine is a great comfort, but so is the fact that he is fully human. For had Christ not assumed our flesh and blood, there would be no hope for us. We would perish everlastingly in the flames of hell. But because he assumed our human nature, sinners like you and me can be saved. Oh, my friend, are you saved by him today? Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed on him? Are you looking to him and his atoning work on the cross as the only hope and ground of your salvation? This is why he came. This is why he who was God became a man, so that he might suffer and die to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe on his name. And the message of the gospel is that whoever does so, whoever believes on him, will not perish but have everlasting life. And my friend, if you have never believed on this Savior, I urge you to do so today. He is perfectly qualified to be your Savior. He is fully human and fully divine. No other can ever make that claim. Only Christ is qualified. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He can save us, but he is also willing to save us. Yes, all who come to him in true repentance and faith, he will in no wise cast out. Rather, he will forgive their sins. He will adopt them as his children and give unto them the gift of everlasting life. We read together from Matthew chapter 16, and as we've seen in that chapter, Christ asked his disciples, Whom do you say that I am? And on behalf of them all, Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, as we come to the end of this article, let me ask you, how would you answer this question? Who is Christ for you? Do you believe that he is the only begotten Son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, very God and very man, possessing two distinct natures, a human nature and a divine nature, which are yet united in one person and yet which remain eternally distinct? That is the teaching of Scripture. The, teach, the question is, do you believe it with all of your heart? Now, I didn't ask you whether you understand it, for we'll never understand it, at least not fully, but I asked you whether you believe it. That's the key. May God give us grace that we may believe on the Lord Jesus as he has revealed himself to us in the Scriptures, fully human, fully divine, and therefore fully equipped to make atonement for the sins of his people. And that believing this, we may have life in his name. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at bannerofTruth at frcna.com. 
org. That's Banner of Truth at frcna.org. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www. Dot frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.